I'm Jeff Eichler. And I'm Kirsten Rickert. And we are the hosts of the Getting Unstuck podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. District leaders nationwide have confirmed that online learning is here to stay. As one in five districts are planning to adopt or have already adopted a fully online school. With the evolving landscape in the competitive field of education, you might be wondering what you can do to stand out. Well, I encourage you to look into National Virtual Teacher Association, or NVTA, to pursue a college-accredited program recognized by states across the country to certify educators in online education. Their certification empowers educators to provide the world-class virtual instruction that every student deserves. The average teacher needs one semester to complete the program, and it culminates in a digital portfolio that you may use in job interviews or even with your current administration to, you know, (laughs) negotiate a raise or promotion. Some of the topics to be covered in the certification include establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources. The NVTA certification process was created to establish a valid and reliable research-based teacher qualification training process for virtual teachers to enhance their teaching and develop their ongoing reflective skills to improve teaching capacity. NVTA certification is a challenging and meaningful process to support your personal and professional goals. NVTA is an affiliate partner for Teaching Learning Leading K-12. Click the link in the show notes or go to my webpage, stephenmoletto.com, find the NVTA logo and go to their website that way. And if you do that, if you buy something, Teaching Learning Leading K-12 gets a commission and I greatly thank you for that. So go check them out. I think you'll be glad you did. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Candace Stump. She's a North American director of Manga High, which is all about mass support. Cool stuff. We got, we're going to talk about gamification. We're going to talk about, uh, you know, things that we're learning about how we might be changing, how we, how we teach and do education now. Great conversation. Glad you're here. Thanks for listening. And uh, by the way, don't forget to share, review and subscribe. Enjoy. Hey, did you know that you can buy me a soft drink? That's right. By going to buymeacoffee.com slash Stephen Maletto, you can support Teaching Learning Leading K-12 by making a donation. And it's really cool. We got this little cool uh, soft drink cup right there. <laughs> that would be so awesome if you do that. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash Stephen Maletto, and you can help support Teaching Learning Leading K-12. Thank you so much. <laughs> You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And and today I'm talking with Candace Stump, who's the director of Manga High for North America. A little bit about Manga High. Manga High is part of Blue Duck Education Limited. It is a primary and secondary online mass resource offering fun, curriculum-aligned, problem-solving activities to engage students in learning to achieve mass mastery. The learning activities include adaptive quizzes, innovative games, and social competitions. The real-time analytical reports with AI support for differentiation ensure teachers and or parents can effectively manage each child's learning pathway. With more than 1,000 engaging activities to boost student understanding, the scaffolded curriculum-aligned activities for class and homework offer a personalized approach to learning. 
And it, just a little bit about Candace. It, and we're going to have her tell us a little bit more, but uh, she describes herself as highly adaptive, technologist, educator with a passion for creative problem solving, team building, and making an impact. And, you know, one of the things that I found out is that she's a yoga instructor. She also has a non, she also uh, teaches coding as well as she's, uh, uh, I, I believe she spends a lot of time doing Brazilian jujitsu. So uh, um, we got a lot of cool stuff here and she's focused on helping kids with math. And uh, Candice, welcome to uh, the program and say hi to everyone. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm glad that you're with us. And, uh, you know, before we talk about uh, Manga High, let's talk about you. Um, first of all, you got to tell me. So, uh, so you've been a yoga instructor and you do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, yeah. And actually, they really go well together, right? Because yoga is all about building resiliency and um, awareness and stretching your own boundaries a little bit. And, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu is certainly all about stretching your boundaries, but then you need to recover and you need to rest. So um, they actually go really well hand in hand. So one of the things we, I think we've learned is that ch ch you have to balance challenge with recovery. And so those two things do that really well. It, it also sort of puts me in a position of consistently being the student. And uh, those are disciplines also that make me a technician. So, and everything in math, right, is all about the technical details. It's very cool. They, uh, you know, and you know, you, you, you do a little bit of with, with um, you teach kids coding. So what, what type of coding? I mean, what are you focused on with them? So my husband and I, with a local, local business owner, founded a group called Coder Dojo Petaluma about five years ago. And we started off just teaching six or seven kids in the library. Um, and it really came out of our kids were at an age where we wanted to help them program because, you know, my husband's a programmer, software engineer, well now a technical architect, but, and at the time I was still coming out of the tech industry and we knew we wanted to give them an experience. And we also knew that a community was going to be huge, right? That these things are best done in community. So we started off just with a little group of kids at the library and then things sort of rolled from there. And we started bringing our own computers in the old days. <laughs> and, you know, we brought raspberry Pis and we showed them how to take things apart. And we definitely have the ethos that if you can't take it apart, you don't own it. Nice. And we really wanted to get kids to feel like they were on, they were producers, not just consumers. And we wanted them to be on the ownership side of the technological revolution. And from there it grew into, we got other volunteers on board and the JC professors got involved because the computer science departments needed, wanted to get, have people with a little bit more knowledge um, for their, for their programs. Cause they had a hard time filling them in those days. So anyway, we ended up with, we paused because of the pandemic, but during the pause or before the pause, excuse me, we had five groups that met every day of the week uh, with about 300 kids a week and five volunteers at each location. Very cool. Very cool. That's <clears throat> really neat stuff. And, and just uh, to make sure when you say Raspberry Pi, we are talking about the, uh, the piece of technology that you get to build something with, right? Not, not an actual raspberry. Yeah. Yeah. It's the technology. Some people were disappointed frequently. <laughs> yeah. <like> <laughs> nice. So, yeah. yeah, you know, a long time ago, you started off in, in kind of a makerspace world. You want to talk about that just a little bit that kind of led you to this world that you're in now? Absolutely. Well, everyone's a maker. Everyone is. Everyone has the capacity to pick something up and make something with what they've got in front of them. And that's actually what humans do, right? We're tool makers and we're good at it. And if we weren't, we'd be in a cave, but look at this, I've got heat and light. And, and all of these things are a matter of us being good tool makers. So a huge part of being a maker is just recognizing that you can do more with what's around you than just what you see. And it teaching it you to look under the surface. So to get here, right, we started with just maker camps and science camps and just building those kinds of really explorative 
experiences, right? Discovery-based learning, constructivist learning, all those things. And then we had parents that came and said, can we just do this all year? Can we find ways to make? And now we would say it was project-based learning, which led to um, a hybrid environment. And we started that about nine years ago. So we were actually in a hybrid environment nine years ago um, before all this happened. Um, and then I've actually been teaching Math Olympiad, uh, my Math Olympiad group online for about five years. So I've actually had a lot of experience with online learning before, before it became universal. Um, and where that, where that went really is when, when, you, when a student takes ownership, when a student really owns their learning, then not only do they have self-motivation and self-direction and you know, all of those things, but, but that's ultimately as an educator what you want is for a student to take ownership and just drive their own ship. That's really what you want. And so all of those things led naturally, actually, from a makerspace to a school that was, you know, that was based on project-based learning. And then, well, there's a lot of project-based learning, but we still need to have really solid math. And I actually started using Manga High in my, um, in my classroom, right? Because I, I was pulling in online resources from the start. And one of the things I would say that's key to understand as well is in a makerspace, you, you embrace the power of technology and you let go of what doesn't serve you, right? So you don't, the problem is sometimes we do the thing where if you only have a hammer, you try to make every problem look like a nail and it's not, <laughs> but, like the way, but the way that that gets better is that you familiarize yourself with different kinds of tools. And that makes you more effective as a problem solver. And we as humans are tool makers because we're problem solvers. And so all of these things actually are, are very much related. Making is about problem solving. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is all about problem solving, right? And math, of course, is all about problem solving as well, which is why it's a portable skill. Math isn't just about math, right? It's also about your finances or buying a home or, you know, how are you going to get from this side of the country to that side of the country? Math is everywhere and it's just peeling back the universe to see what it's made of. That's so pretty to, cool. Yeah. I was just going to say to get, to get from making to anything else, really all roads lead to it, right? Is a matter of how do we become better problem solvers and how do we have more effective and efficient and fun lives, right? Even if you aren't going to be an engineer, maybe, you know, whatever it is that you're going to do is going to be supported by understanding critical thinking and problem solving. That's awesome. I love it. And it just, I have to, I have to go back to something you said, which is I can, I can imagine that um, the jujitsu is a lot of problem solving, especially if you get uh, tied up in a knot and you're down there mad and trying to figure out how to get out of it. So all day, <laughs> all day. <laughs> I, I, I love that though description about it. Cause that's, you know, math is, uh, it is problem solving. Very cool. So, so yeah. let's, let's kind of shift into Manga High and, and let's talk about, uh, so as, as the North American director for Manga High, what's your main focus? What, what do you mainly do? So my role at Manga High actually is to expand our presence and, and again, continue to educate people, right? Help people be better tool users and problem solvers. So it's really interesting though, I would say that I just yesterday spent 45 minutes going over with the teacher, everything that she could do on the platform because she wanted to review it. And, you know, 45 minutes in, she says, why haven't I heard of this before? Why haven't I seen this? And, you know, it's a very interesting thing. Globally, Manga High has a very strong presence worldwide, right? We're very well known across Europe and Australia, New Zealand, that kind of thing. But in North America, it actually is a little bit newer to the, newer to the scene. 
and some of that just has to do with we have we run a lot of ads in North America. It's a very competitive space. There's a lot of other companies doing doing really interesting and great things as well. And so when there's you know five different companies in the space, sometimes it sometimes it's easy for to, to not hit that tipping point where everybody knows about you. So my role primarily is to expand our presence, teach people more about how to use it. And then the other thing I primarily do too is make sure that we're doing what we need to do in order to meet the needs of North American educators. So I spend a lot of time sort of identifying features that are gonna help Manga High support North American educators better. Case in point, globally, there are curricula, right? And, and what we think of as curricula are actually, what we think of as curricula globally is what people think of as standards. So like in the UK, you have IGCSE standards and people teach those. But in the US, we have a different model where we actually purchase privately owned curricula like Big Ideas or Engage New York or which isn't privately owned, but it's still, you know, a separate thing. And so between the standards and the students sits this curriculum. And so a lot of the time for us, it's a matter of connecting the curriculum with what Man how Manga High is able to support them. So and that's very different from the way that it's implemented worldwide. And so once once I arrived and we were able to start doing that, and then just let more teachers know that this resource was here and could support them, you know, people are really excited. But yeah, we just want to let people know more about Manga High because it's such a fun resource. I started using it myself about eight years ago in my classroom. Very cool. So so let's get into that. Uh, you know how it is used. I mean, you know it. Uh, it focuses on mathematics and not other content. And if you can kind of just kind of mention that just a little bit, the, uh, but can you just tell us, I mean, first of all, and we heard that it's primary and secondary. So uh, if, if it has an emphasis on certain grades, if you could talk about that just a little bit, but uh, you know, tell us a little bit about what it's like. What's that experience like if you uh, start using Manga High? What is, what, what's a kid um, gonna see? Oh yeah, so there's two different types of content on Manga High. So there's the quizzes, which are adaptive. They're 10 questions each, and they, wor they work through the domain of knowledge from the beginning, meaning you start with easy questions, and those have fewer words and fewer things to cope with, right? The problems are fairly simple and straightforward. And then you move up to medium questions, and they give you a little bit more detail and maybe more stuff to ignore. And then you get to the hard level, and those are aligned at grade level, right? And at that point, you're not going to, you're not getting any additional information, no hints, et cetera. You just, you know, but we've hopefully prepared you to be able to answer questions at that level. And if you answer those correctly, then you can move on to extreme, which are extensions, which broaden out. And one of my favorite things about Manga High is that the extreme questions, they don't just go linearly where we go third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. Actually, extension questions should do exactly what the word implies and that's extend outwards. So if you have a fraction, let's say you're in a fraction activity and you get to the extension level, it might actually start connecting fractions with units of measure. So it might start bringing in things like ounces and pounds and just across the different domains of math. So which actually causes us to think better. So in my makerspace days, I would tell you that if we had a, an activity where the goal is to make a duct tape wallet, right? A wallet out of duct tape. Yes. And then we've got another, and then we've got another area. I've got pictures. And then we've got another area where the goal is actually to take different kinds of um, metallic Sharpies and to, you know, to decorate a particular white sheet of paper. When you've really succeeded is when they make the, that wallet out of duct tape and then they carry it over to the Sharpie station and they start decorating it. It's when they start connecting disparate items. 
So that's really, I think that's one of the most powerful things about Manga High in my classroom is that it steps students through in a way that's supportive, but also scaffolds. And then by the time you get to the parts where it genuinely takes some creativity and some persistence to really do well, you're prepared. So those are the prodigy activities. And then the game-based learning, honestly, the best, just the best. The games are, the games are math-based, meaning, you know, a lot of the time we, early on especially, I would see math games that were, <clears throat> you, you do the math so that you can earn the right to play the game, right? Where the math and the mechanic are separate. But that's actually not how the games on Manga High work. The way that the games on Manga High work is that you, in order to win the game, you have to do the math. So case in point, if you're doing a load of laundry and you're trying to gamify it for your kids, what you do is you separate it into tasks. And then for each of those tasks, you offer rewards. Right. And maybe you offer some constrained circumstances where you say, OK, five stars if you can get the load separated within five minutes. Right. But you're still gamifying a specific task. But if you want to have an, an experience where the immersion into the experience is the learning experience itself, that's an escape room. Right. And then right. Then the experience itself is the learning. Right. And that's game based learning. And that's the other piece. Of, that's the other half of Manga High, which is the, the game based math based games. I love that. I love that. And yeah, you, you got me thinking now yeah, that laundry thing, you could, uh, okay, you got to do, you can only use one, your left hand. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, <you> know, yes. <laughs> I, that's cool. That's, uh, that's very cool. Yeah. That's, and I know exactly what you're talking about because in, in the past when my kids were young, you know, the, the, some of those gamified uh, math based computer games were very much like what you talked about. You, you, completed the math to get the door to open, to go to whatever else the next thing was, whatever that fun thing was that you were going to do next. And, and, uh, this is, this is interesting how much it's, it's come from since then. What, you know, and yeah. just as note, does Manga High have like characters that, uh, for the younger kids and the or older kids that they follow or use the same characters, or is it just, is it not like that? So there aren't specific characters that, <clears throat> that go through the games with the kids. Um, but there are characters that are consistent and represented across um, across the website and then, you know, in the platform itself. But the platform itself, and I, this is actually really relevant, so I'm glad you brought it up. The platform itself keeps things simple, right? And there's lots of different ways in life where, where you can express this. Um, one of them is math is actually everywhere. It's all around you. It's just really peeling back, you know, the skin to look at oh, you know what, this describes how the universe works. It's already here, I just wasn't thinking of it in this way. But the way that we learn best is we, we relate it to something in real life. So just like laundry, right? And we were saying, oh, we just learned something about math. But if, if we can contextualize it and make it about something that the kids already feel comfortable with, then learning becomes so much easier and they just soak it up like a sponge. So one of the reasons for the characters on the site and one of the reasons for the color palette and everything just being simple is that it's much easier to absorb something if it seems like a really simple idea. If we're asking a student to just do one thing at a time and they do one thing and one thing and one thing, and then they get to a more complicated situation and they have to try to do four different things or balance between what tools they might choose from, but they can look back and say, I've done all of those things, right? And that's what it should look like, but again, in a, in a platform that's simplified and so that it allows the brain to build knowledge and build knowledge and then can use those, that knowledge. So a great way to explain this, is remember we were talking about the hammer oh, <laughs> and we yes, were saying yes. if every problem looks like if every problem looks like a nail it's probably because the only thing you know how to use is a, is a hammer <laughs> and so you just have to develop knowledge of more tools 
you don't develop knowledge of more tools by somebody dumping a toolbox on your head, right? That doesn't really work. You no. develop, no, not that I've tried that, but I'm just saying, so, oh. <laughs> you know, I try not to do that to my students. So, but after the, if you think about it, the way that we really develop more better tool knowledge is you hand them a screwdriver and then you show them a couple ways to use it. And then you suggest that they go around and look for, you know, ways that this might apply. Just keep away from light sockets, right? right. But if you, <laughs> and then you give them another tool, right? You take that one away maybe, and you give them another tool and you show them a couple ways they might use that. And then you give them another tool and you show them a couple ways they might use that. And then by the end of the day, they got five. And then you say, okay, great. Now we've got this problem. How do you think we might, what tools do we need? And how do we break that down? And because they've seen each of them already, they can apply it so much more effectively. So a huge part of what Manga High does is doesn't dump the tool, you know, the box of tools on, on the student's head, but instead lays those tools out and then in a really methodical way goes through and just gently shows how each of them work and then starts putting them together in more complicated ways. That's awesome. And I love the analogy. And, it, and you know, one of my all-time favorite movies are the, are the first two. We'll not talk about the, the last two, but the first two Home Alone movies. And uh, yes. you can actually see a toolbox dumped on somebody's head in... <laughs> in those movies. So and he ow. did not learn much from it. I'll just no, say. No, he didn't. Well, he did learn not to go that way into the house <laughs> to deal with Kevin, but <laughs> yes. you know, um, it, I, I love this, this thought here. And it's funny because you've made me think about a couple of different things, which is kind of cool uh, as a, you know, uh, never an expert, not even close to only played a little bit and used it as a thing to help kids who like the game to, uh, have a place to uh, feel like they belonged and uh, use my room and such. When I was a teacher, um, I, you know, as a kid, I played Dungeons and Dragons and, mm. and not very well. And then as a, uh, as a, as a teacher, I, you know, the kids who played games like magic or Pokemon or Dungeons and Dragons and some other games that were those types of role play games, I'd give them a place to play as long as they would let me play once in a while. <laughs> and um, right. What was funny is that your analogy there with the toolbox and all that sort of stuff is, this, and, and especially the, the idea of, uh, you know, learning to use a tool. They have one tool and they use it like that hammer. Everything's a hammer. And, yeah. you know, a lot of kids, when they start playing a game like Dungeons and Dragons, they have a sword and all they do is smash things. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. it's like okay, we, we need to learn how to do something different here. Okay. So, um, and it's. Roll it's for just, initiative. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And, and yeah. Uh, it's just funny. That's what you started making me think about. And th the irony of this is that I actually uh, was working on a, a, a um, something that I'm putting on my YouTube channel that uh, where I'm talking about the, the treasure test toolbox, <laughs> or yeah. uh, um, the bag of tricks that teachers develop over time. And it's the same thing that we, we can't just have that hammer, we have to develop all these different skills. I, I love the analogy yeah. that you just had, because it, it makes you think about um, all of that. So very cool. I, you know, one of the things that I'd like to do is uh, let's kind of sh shift into how, you know, stuff is, is working right now with online learning sure. and so forth. And, you know, sure. one, of, one of the things that's interesting is that since the pandemic, you know, it, it, there's a lot of, there's a huge learning curve that took place trying to figure out how to uh, get into this online world um, from classrooms where they weren't online and they were face to face and trying to figure out how to do distance learning. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, how do you think some of the teaching strategies have changed in, in this world that we're in? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I think that there is a considerable amount of divergence in terms of how teaching strategies are being applied. 
um, the current situation is a huge learning curve and it is also um, a turning point, I would say. Um, I know that a friend of mine actually who works at the University of Colorado and teaches teachers how to use their technology, two weeks before the pandemic, um, you know, her job is to equip those professors with their, you know, Canvas and all their online tools. Two weeks before the pandemic, 30% of them hadn't even opened any of their technological tools, which goes to show, right, that there's a certain amount of inertia in terms of adopting technological tools, right? Um, it's like, and, and I recognize this as a teacher, a lot of the time, just the social emotional nature of what you're doing, teaching is, is intense, right? It's an intensive thing. And a lot of the time there isn't time sufficiently for, to do the professional development that's necessary in order to really adopt new tools, et cetera. And one of the things the pandemic did was it, I, I think a really good analogy for this, and you may have mentioned this earlier is okay, we're gonna solve this problem, but now you can't use your right hand, right? And yeah. the pandemic has really done that. It's really said, okay, now you have to use your technological tools. And as we all know, you know, when you, when you focus your, your attention on a narrow, on a narrow problem, you're, that's so powerful because now all of a sudden there's this laser focus on it. So one of the things that's happened is that a lot of teachers and administrators as well have leapfrogged forward 10 years in terms of their understanding and their usage of the platforms, right? And partially that's out of necessity and partially that's because teachers by nature, I think are, you know, people who wanna solve problems. Because if you didn't, you, you would not be teaching students, right? You wouldn't be teaching kids. You would pick a job that is, that is much easier and requires less problem solving. So I think in general, teachers want to do that. Now, some teachers have really gone, like gone the full, the full bore, right? And they're in, they're using Flipgrid and they're using Manga High and they're using, you know, they're, they're, they're picking all these particular tools. And some are, are still kind of in the place. And I, I think this is again, just not enough time and maybe, you know, personal preference. Some are still sending students PDFs and saying, print out the PDF, take a picture of it and send it back to me. And I sort of liken that to you've landed on the moon which is kind of where we are, right? We're on the cyber moon, right? Yes. All your normal, all the normal rules of gravity don't apply in cyberspace, right? So in some ways there's an incredible power there, but in order to do that, you have to embrace being on the moon. You can't just build yourself a little house and recreate what earth looks like because number one, that's a really small space, right? Trying to do everything the way that you did it in the classroom is no longer efficient, number one. But number two, you miss out on the magic of, of that space. So one of the things that online learning, I learned this eight years ago, allows you to do with students is number one, you can actually, it equalizes the playing field. If you have students that don't tend to speak up in an online space, you know, you can create a text-based opportunity, you can create subgroups, whatever, and it tends to empower quieter voices. You can also automatically, you can adjust for um, learning differences. You can provide closed captioning for students that either are language learners or have difficulty hearing. You can, you can address people as they are, right? And, and with the power of technology, you can really just make it, you can equalize everybody's voice a lot better. The other thing you can do is you can really take advantage of the space to leverage students' creativity. So let me give you an example. In terms of teaching strategies changing, right? Back in the day, <laughs> we would do math and then there'd be a worksheet and I'd ask everybody to turn it in, right? Just to demonstrate. And as you, of course, as you get better, you try to come up with other ways that students can demonstrate their learning. Because we know pedagogically, right, that students are going to be more invested in their learning if they're able to choose some aspect of it and if they're able to focus on an area of strength. So what does that mean, teaching strategy-wise? It means that a lot of teachers 
have been able to leverage what technology does well to give to empower students better. So really great example, math. If you're doing an exit ticket and at the end you're trying to turn in, you know, what you know, standard exit ticket used to be like, here's a sheet of paper, do this. Or if you're really creative, you're like, all right, fold me a piece of origami that shows, you know, two different, um, two different axes of, of symmetry, right? But now we actually can offer students so much more. We can say, shoot me a TikTok, write me a Twitter battle, right? I, I got one, a Twitter battle about the Civil War, which was kind of amazing. You know, you can, we can now offer them opportunities to, to record a voice thread. We can say to them, okay, construct some kind of scenario and send it to me. Just demonstrate your learning in some way. And all of a sudden, once you give students not only choice, but you give these digital natives the opportunity to use tools that they've really adopted on their own, now all of a sudden you have really engaged learners and you have an engaged learning process and you've made learning relevant to them because they can see that it can live in their universe as opposed to learning is in a room at a desk with a piece of paper and a pencil. That's not actually how it needs to work, right? You can go on a Pokemon, a Pokewalk, right? Remember the right. Pokemon game? You can go on a Pokewalk, don't go in traffic, and you can walk <laughs> all over town, right? And get 10 miles of exercise, learning a whole lot more about your community. And all of that is good stuff, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be, I'm studying a map at home, or I'm studying a map in the classroom of my town, and I'm doing a PE class separately. Like, you can actually combine those things. So in terms of teaching strategies, I would say that the best educators and the people that have had the most opportunity to leverage are really able to leverage cyberspace. And I completely want to encourage people to do that. The ones that are having a hard time are usually the folks that, you know, two weeks before the pandemic hadn't used any of their digital tools. And so one of the things we need to do is help them access those digital tools more effectively. You got that right. That, that group is an interesting group right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Needed a lifeline. <laughs> They do. And, you know, but we also know that the ones that the creatures that are most successful are the ones that are most adaptive to change. So we have to help people adapt to change. And the 21st century economy doesn't look like sitting in a classroom either. You know, that's a 19th century factory model and that's not the world. So being able to actually move that forward has been really powerful. One of the things about teaching strategies as well that I think is going to continue to evolve and that we need to find ways to support is there's online models and then there's hybrid models. There's been a lot of teachers that have discovered they can be just as effective if they're meeting a whole class three days a week and then they can break into groups two days a week, right? And they don't need to be on Zoom all day. They can do it for 30 minutes. Zoom fatigue is real, right? Yes. You know, but what's, here's what's fascinating. In normal times, that would have taken five to 10 years to develop as a phrase that we all know, right? <laughs> that would have taken a while. But in the current situation, we're under a compressed time frame. we've all learned so much and we're going to continue to do that. And my hope is that we can take the best of what this situation has brought us and use that to really leverage education forward for students and teachers. I love it. I love it. This is, uh, it's so, you know, and it's funny because it really did. I mean, I suddenly just, it yanked away like a whole bunch of years and said, guess what? We're up here now. Um, and yeah. you better catch up because we're, I, we're trying not to go back. And which I love that description you said before about building a house on the moon. I'm going to stay in this house and I'm not going to try and interact. Um, it's, it's not easy. You can't really do that. And so you got to move forward, which is cool. So you know, yeah. what do you think about, uh, um, you know, one of the things that I want to kind of mention here is that you know, there's a difference between online games and what education-based gamified learning is. Can you kind of address that just a little bit? Sure. So any 
scenario in any game, there's going to be a certain amount of learning because it involves a certain amount of problem solving, right? There's a certain amount, but a really well-designed educational game um, is going to do that job that we talked about, right? Where you get five tools, you lay them out, and then you find ways to introduce them in ways that are absorbable by students. So a really great educational-based game is going to provide a whole bunch of content, rules, and a great experience without making it feel like a lot of work to the student. So a really great example, and MangaHive for sure is a huge part of my, my toolkit, you know, um, and I think works that way in any event because of how it allows you to practice. But one of the best games on the site is a game called Tangled Web. And a really great example, it's, let's say you take a triangle, okay? And you have a little spider and you're trying to navigate the spider to some place and then at the, at, in order to do that, you have to answer questions about, you know, the angles that are formed. And then when you do that, it unlocks lines and so on. But when the thing that makes it most powerful is that the, it is radially symmetry, symmetrical, meaning it rotates, right? So you've got this little spider in this space, and now you have to rotate the space in order to navigate the spider to where it goes. But one of the things that you're teaching students for free, they're just going to absorb because they're in there. And when I say free, I mean free of cognitive load, right? But one of the things that students are going to get out of that is, oh, that triangle relationship is the same however I rotated in space. It's not based on, you know, sitting there. And I don't know about you, but for me, I had lots of students where I'd draw them a triangle and then I'd go, okay, and then I'd start turning the page. And then students are like, whoa, hold on, that's crazy talk, right? And it takes you a minute to be able to like have them wrap their head around. No, it stays the same. The relationships stay the same in a fixed figure, right? But on Manga High, right, and in a game-based capacity, we can actually put that into the environment and they just absorb it as part of, oh, okay, I gotta turn this, the angle stays the same, but I'm moving the spider from X to Y, right? So it's a learning, it's a, it's a rule that they get to learn and they don't even necessarily feel it as effort. So am I, did, am I answering your question? Those oh yeah, yeah, you're doing good. Okay. I was just gonna, I, I, I gotta say this real quick, because this is what you made me think of is, you know, it. And part of it is in, visualize, in visualizing what you're talking about, you know, in lots of math classes and science classes, you know, you're asked to imagine imaginary or, you know, things that really are ab very abstract. And, and the concept of like the spider is walking on those planes, those different planes that exist in that web that's, that's built there and you're, you've created that triangle and it's just an interesting way of being able to actually be able to visualize the picture that you're talking about. And uh, I like that. Yeah, I think, I mean, we could, <clears throat> I like to say that sometimes we get a little too attached to educator speak and there's nothing wrong with it. You know, it helps us communicate with each other, right? We can talk about cognitive science and you know, what is the pedagogy of this and how does this work? And, and that has value, don't get me wrong. But often, we can also make a connection on a more visceral level if we connect it to something where, where other people have, you know, some kind, can relate. So you can relate to a spider, you can relate to a spider web, you can relate yes. to, you know, you can relate to those things. And that makes it easier to make a little tiny jump to the next thing, which is, you know, there's, a, there's something caught in the web or, you know, whatever that looks like, however that shows up in your mind. But you're right, right? It takes you out of that, this is an abstract idea and takes you to, here's, here's a place where it applies. And then as soon as you can kind of see, as soon as you make that leap to application, you can make another little leap and you can make another little leap. And then all those leaps will add up. And that's really the idea.
I love that. Love it. Love it. Love it. Good stuff. It, you know, one of the things that's happening right now is that, uh, you know, teachers are trying to get kids reengaged with their learning because some of, you know, depending on what's going on in whatever state they're in, you know, there's all and communities, there's a possibility that they've gone virtual and face to face, then back to virtual. And, you know, and some communities have stayed virtual the entire time. And, you know, and, uh, a lot of what's happened in reality is that some people have decided that they're going to let their kid decide if they show up at the class or not online. And, uh, and that, and, and so some of the kids are looking for engagement and uh, can we talk just a little bit about uh, which features and functions of online learning platforms you think are most important to re-engaging students in their studies? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that, you know, I have talked with teachers that are kind of in tears, right, and saying only 30% of my students are logging in and I don't know what to do. And, you know, in a classroom environment, there's a certain amount of power of physical presence, meaning the student walks in, they sit down, the teacher has designed the room, right? It's yes. your room, right? <clears throat> and so in an online environment, you are competing against not only what other things they're interested in, but they're not physically in the room. And so there's a little bit of a different dynamic there. And we have, to, we have to find ways to be able to connect with students that don't depend on physical proximity. And that can be really challenging. So a lot, of the, a lot of the things that we can do are things like making visible the things that happen in person invisibly. So a really good example is teachers will say, will say to students, they're really doing a great job. They'll say, you know, pop an emoji in the, in the chat and that tells me how you're doing today, right? Or if you don't want to do that, pop it, pop it as a private message to me if you're having a rough day, right? And that's a signal to the teacher that that student might need some extra support at that time. So one of the features that's really important is a way for students to be able to communicate how they're feeling, their mental state, social emotional pieces, you know, be able to capture that. And it's also important now for tools, especially like Manga High, that can communicate that level of encouragement that teachers would normally provide in person, right? So in person, if I see a student and they're kind of hunched over and their spine is sagging and I can see, you know, that they, they, they might just need a little pick-me-up, <clears throat> but in a Zoom world, they might just have their screen off. And I really don't know if they're just doing jumping jacks to stay awake, <clears throat> right? Or right. if they're just sitting there with that slump, right? I don't know that, so I have to get them to tell me that. So one of the most important things to do is to support student-teacher communication. And one of the most important things too is for platforms ideally to actually build in encouragement and support <clears throat> into the platform. And I know that our team actually is building some of that functionality right now. They're building in um, social emotional support, especially for growth mindset um, that allows students to recognize that you just need to keep going. Like sometimes you just need to keep at it. And, and, in, and then in terms of how we support online learning and teachers and students, the biggest thing is we have to be able to create that sense of shared experience. So we could call it community, you can call it what, you know, whatever that is, but there has to be a way for students and teachers to connect. Because the other thing about being a teacher, as you know, is sometimes <clears throat> just you standing there and saying, we can do this. Here, come on, let's just lay this out. We'll figure this out together, right? Is they're there and they get pulled into that energy of, of like, you know, cheerful muscular competence, right? They get pulled into that. But in, an, in a Zoom environment, you, you don't necessarily have that same option. So sometimes the challenge is just getting them to show up, right? And if you can get them to show up, but then you can connect, 
right? We have to be able to, they got to show up and then you have to find a way to connect with that student. And different students need different things. Sometimes you connect with a student by giving them opportunities and then just being really praiseful of whatever they do, right? They go off and they make a three minute video. Your best thing is to just go, wow, that's amazing. Here's what I like about it, right? And then maybe you give them a little bit of feedback, but you know, for the most part, just be supportive of the fact that they're putting effort into something. For other students, a lot of the time, it can be as simple as going, it's really important that you come. Is there something happening for you? Right? Or seems like maybe a group environment's not working for you. Why don't we set up a small group and we'll meet on Thursdays, you know, for half an hour? So there's a certain amount that, and then the other thing, of course, right, is the things that <clears throat> platforms can do really well are is take the load off of teachers so that they can spend time on that really good example is real-time feedback right if you're gonna if you have to grade a paper and then give it back there's three days or whatever it is in between the time that the students done it and the time that they know what's happening right and they can you know they can mentally adjust so that's something mega high does really well actually is you get in real-time feedback and then as a teacher I can actually go in and look at the dashboard and see how all of my students are performing and I can see how they're doing on every activity in, the, in this domain I can see how they're growing so that's one of the best things that a platform can really do is provide provide the kinds of things that are easy for technology to do but are time-consuming for a teacher to give that teacher time to connect with those students because as we were saying that's one of the big challenges is the disconnect does tend to be more that does tend to be more problematic because you don't control that space. Yeah, you got that right. Most definitely. Uh, you know, Candace, why don't you tell us a little bit about how Manga High helps with intervention students? I'm so glad you asked. Um, one of the, my favorite things about Manga High, and this was true in, when I used it in my classroom, and it's, it's even more true now, is that it really has the power to reach across the spectrum from students that are, you know, really struggling and and need some help getting to to where they need to be in terms of you know a grade level and then it also provides a really wide open um, runway for students that are needing additional challenge and that is the hardest part of a classroom right is teaching kiddos that are you know technically two years behind grade level and then you've got kids that are bored and looking out the window and then you've got a bunch of people in the middle and meeting all of those needs is just such a it is such a talent to be able to reach everybody in the room right and so one of the things that Manga High does really, really well um, is it allows, because you're personalizing, it means that for a student that's two years behind grade level, I know that as a teacher, and I know that it's important to try to help that student move forward, but telling that student that they're behind in an accidental way or a peer pressure-y kind of way, or just they know because they're in the room, can honestly impede their learning, right? We, we know that because it, it goes to a student's self-image and self-worth. And if a student feels like they're stupid or they've decided that they can't, then they can't. So one of the most powerful things we can do is address the student where they are and allow them to take the time that they need to get where they need to go. So what Manga High allows you to do is you can meet a student where they are, assign an activity, and the student works through that activity at their own pace. If they need to do it two times, that's great. If they need to do it 15 times, that's fine. Manga High doesn't care. <laughs> you know, you just keep doing what you need to do in order to learn, right? And every student deserves the right to learn at their own pace. And so if we, if we do that with students that are below grade level, that we genuinely give them an opportunity to master concepts. Because, you know, teachers will tell you that one of the biggest problems is in sixth grade is you get students whose fourth grade math wasn't that great, and now they're trying to clean it up. <laughs> and these things tend to roll forward, right? right? So, you know, in order so to really do that well, what you have to do is take the time to unpack it for the student 
and really help them understand it and master it so that they can move forward. And the, the awesome part about Manga High for me is that, you know, I can, I can help a student, every student work at the level that they're at at the same time. So I can assign activities at fourth grade level for this kiddo who just needs more mastery of that before they move on, you know, to, and maybe we're in a sixth grade classroom, but that doesn't mean that that, but that doesn't mean that that student doesn't deserve to work at the level that they're at until they're ready to move forward. And then we're in a sixth grade classroom and I've got a kiddo who's looking out the window because he's actually ready for algebra. Right. And that's fine because I can assign him activities that meet him where he's at. So I think when we talk about intervention, it's really important for me. I don't define, I don't define intervention as, as something that is um, only done for students that are below grade level. Right. It's that personalization is personalization across the board and an intervention really should look like getting the student what they need. And so if we're able to do that for students that are below grade level, that are at grade level, who might need a little bit more time with a particular subject, like maybe they kind of roll forward a little bit, but they didn't really have mastery of it, but it's time to move on. But by giving them access to a platform that never gets tired and that allow it, allows them to just keep working at the pace that they need to work at, then we provide students with, an, with an op, every student with an opportunity to develop mastery. And we know that mastery learning is what's going to both drive future achievement as well as joy. Right. And why not make it joyful? That's such a great way to be able to make sure that their attitude toward it is positive. And we know that an, a positive attitude toward anything is always going to turn around to higher performance, higher achievement levels, more persistence, more grit, all of those things. Oh, I love that. And not only that, it's going to make them want to do more because they're starting to have uh, some success and there's some happiness to it. And it's like, well, there's not pain associated with this. So I'm moving forward. <laughs> success feels awesome. Yeah. Yes, success does. feels awesome. And it, and it also depends on how you define success, right? So if we're defining success as mastery, then we're allowing that student not only ownership, but we're allowing every student to be successful, right? So there's an environment where you're trying to earn medals, but it's not necessarily just about trying to, you know, beat the student in your class. Although we do have leaderboards for students that, that are challenge-based and want to do that, which can be motivational too, right? But if, if the fortunate thing is for every student, we have something for everybody. And especially for students that are, a little bit behind where their peers are because they get to work at their own pace until they get to where they need to be. And then we're also able to, you know, help with things like assessment and, you know, making the engine will make recommendations to a student. So if the student is struggling with a particular activity, it will suggest or recommend a scaffolding activity to help them get that back to that activity. And then they also, you know, they also have assignments from teachers and then the teachers are able to view that data and make additional recommendations. And so there's this real feedback loop there that's positive that allows us to address students that need intervention. It's very cool because what you're talking about is that as they experience that success, it, it, it breeds the desire to have more success and, uh, and the willingness to move forward because they're experiencing some where the computer's helping them, the, the simulation, the platform is helping them um, start achieving that success. And that's, that's cool. That's neat. And that's, it's going to definitely pay off in the classroom for the teacher. So. Yeah. And it's never more important than now, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you're in a classroom, like I said, you know, what we were talking about earlier, you can kind of get with that student and you can shivvy them along a little and you can encourage them into forward progress. But when they're at home, all of a sudden we have to develop additional tools to motivate, reach, support, and give that student opportunities for success when they're not in front of us, when they're in front of their own computer. So we have to get creative, right? And this is, this is an opportunity for growth. You can't use your right hand, left hand only, right? Yes. And, and here's the interesting part. They're kind of our canaries in the coal mine, right? 
our intervention students because what supports them will support everyone, really, right? That personalization, that, that focus on mastery, that making sure that the student understands, that actually helps everybody. That actually helps everybody get better. So it's gonna allow us to like raise the tide, right? It's gonna allow us to raise the bar for everyone. And I, and I think that's only great. Oh, I'm so, I love that. I love that. Thank you so much for talking about that. Great stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so uh, Candace, when, you know, one of the things that we got to make sure that we talk about before we leave is, is that, uh, you know, there's, there's this attainment gap that's happening and, you know, it's, it already was part of the world, but, you know, in this world that we're in with the pandemic, it, you know, there's kids that are getting further and further behind because they're not showing up or they're not uh, feeling, you know, they're not being engaged. So they're just not getting into this whole thing, you know, looking at little boxes and their teacher on the other end and stuff like this, you know, what role can ed tech specifically game gamified learning platforms play in efforts to close this attainment gap? That's a great question. So um, there's really three pieces to that, right? There's, we need to find a way to make sure that we're personalizing and, and we also need to make sure that what we're, that we're able to reach the student. And then I think one, one of the biggest things really is again, to take the load off that teacher, right? So, and here's the good news, at least at Manga High, and I'm sure at other companies, we have been spending nothing but, you know, energy on figuring out how to solve this problem and how to help and support students in closing that gap. So one of the things EdTech can do is take the load off teachers by doing things like automatic grading, a lot of reporting, providing a lot of information about how students are doing in various areas. And that level of granularity can be really, really helpful for a teacher because then they don't have to go in and be grading an individual paper. Now, obviously that's not true when you have things like an essay, right? There are certain things that make sense to grade automatically and there are certain things that don't. But EdTech can do a lot, you know, by being a platform that can do what it does well, right? The other thing about attainment gaps is that sometimes that's as much an equity issue as anything else. So one of the things EdTech can do is facilitate students with learning differences getting their needs met better. So in a classroom, sometimes you have push-in or pull-out services for special education, et cetera. But in an online environment, and especially for EdTech, you can actually um, accommodate students better. Right, so you can do, um, again, closed captioning, you can do reading questions aloud, you can do questions in English and Spanish. There's all kinds of things that EdTech can do to personalize and reach students individually. And that's actually what the focus should be on. The other thing EdTech can do is they can help educate parents. So we actually have like a parent outreach um, piece that we do in terms of webinars and training and that kind of stuff, because right now a whole bunch of parents have all of a sudden become homeschooling parents. And it's, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I can tell you that is a tall order. That is a tall order, not in a pandemic. And disproportionately, that does tend to, it looks like that's, that's landing on primary caregivers, which is, looks like it's disproportionately landing on women in particular. And so it, one of the things EdTech can do is be there, be supportive, and provide as much data as possible to teachers while providing an engaging learning experience to students. And I know that that's we, what we focus on as well. Right. At Manga High, we're always out of asking the question, how does this work for students and how does reporting back work for teachers? Are we it. moving forward? Yeah, I love that. That is just looking at whether the child's looking, the individual is moving forward or not, which that's you know, a big part of trying to, to close you know, that type of gap is going to be, are you, is somebody paying attention? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is somebody paying? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and do they care? 
Right. Right. If I do a great job, do people care? I think the final piece that that any, I mean, I'm sure you know this as a teacher, but I just feel like I need to say the wall is there, right? But there is a really obvious piece about making it, making it engaging, making it fun, making it interesting. And students are going to show up, especially the older students, right? They will, they are, they are here for it. I mean, if you're going to make it interesting, they're here and they're going to, they're going to make it happen. And they are ready to jump out and do something really great. And that's actually something ed tech can do really well is we can, we can take again, power of the internet, right? We can do animation, we can, we can personalize but we can make it so much more engaging if we do it the right way. And that's something we should be doing as well. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Uh, Candace, we're getting close to, to closing out here. And uh, how does a school teacher, parent, student, or someone else get their school to take a look at Manga High? Oh, you know, it's really easy. You go to mangahigh.com. That makes it yep. very simple. <laughs> <laughs> it does. And you can email us too. You can email us at schools at mangahigh.com. You can email me, candace.stump at mangahigh.com. We're always happy to talk to teachers and talk about how we can support them. I think that, um, you know, when things get difficult and you have a lot of stuff being thrown at you, the number one thing is just to pick something easy to start with, right? Something easy to start with. And I think all teachers can recognize that, right? Like what's the phrase? No battle plan survives first contact with the enemy and no, no first year teaching plan survives first contact with a classroom, right? And so, but at that moment, you then have to refactor and rethink and go, how does this work? And a lot of the time, if you keep it simple, right? If you keep it simple and you know that you have tools that you can access, then you can make some progress until you can get comfortable and then you can continue to, and then you can continue to grow. But start with something that works, right? So start by giving you one hammer. Let's start with that. I like that. I like that a lot. So, um, so uh, one last question for you, for you, Candace. Um, do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Oh my gosh. You know, I have so many <laughs> is the thing. Um, I would say the two that were most, that have been most meaningful for me um, are uh, Skip Hancock, who actually um, taught me my very first real lesson in grit, right? I, I really became a gritty person because of his, because of his work. Um, and uh, Tony Briggs, who has been my yoga teacher for 15 years. And the ones that were the most powerful in my life are the people who always asked me to be more. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And they show you a vision of yourself that's bigger. That, that's awesome. I love it. And yeah. And I think as an educator, that was always my goal is to reflect the best of somebody so they can see themselves bigger. I love that. That is awesome. Hey, Steve here. And I just want to let you know, don't change that channel because part two of my conversation with Candace Stump, the director of uh, North for North America of Manga High is coming right up. Uh, we had some other thoughts that we had about talking about certain things like learning loss and, and uh, what change might happen and uh, what it's going to be like when we go back to school and SEL. And uh, so we decided to extend it a little bit. So you got that great stuff coming up. Stay tuned.
Hey, this is a special add-on that uh, Candace and I got back together again, and we decided to talk about a few other topics that uh, that were missing out of our, our last discussion. So this is a special extra bonus part of this episode, and uh, what we're gonna we're gonna get into a little bit about learning loss. We're gonna get into a little bit about going back, what's next, and SEL. So uh, uh, thanks for joining us here again, and uh, Candace, um, it's awesome to ha- you know, have you back into this. It, you know, after talking, we got this uh, decided to to make this extra part happen here. Uh, yeah. uh, just to remind everybody, she's the director of Manga High for North America, and uh, let's get started. So let's start by talking about one of the big topics right now is uh, the idea that uh, you know there are kids who they just kind of disappeared off the face of the map. They mm-hmm. they decided that you know tell me when you're going to teach real school and I'll start coming back, or uh, others uh, didn't show up in the virtual classrooms or whatever the reason. And not only them, then there's also the kids who this just didn't work out that well for them. And so there's, we have this feeling like there should be an asterisk on the, on this 2020 year. Uh, oh, I don't even know if I want to, maybe the year that should not be named or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> a little Harry Potterish or something. You know, it's like, um, but the, I've made but, it into a swear word. What yes, the 2020 exactly. is that? Yeah. I like that. That's, that works exactly. Right. You know, so uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about, uh, um, this idea of learning loss. What are you, what are you hearing? And let's, let's go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the thing about this whole pandemic is it's exposed a number of cracks in the system that we've had for a long time. I mean, we know that access to devices is huge. We know that not having access to devices contributed to substantial gaps in equity in terms of students that could access their, their educations and students that couldn't. Um, I think what we've seen is that and let's address learning loss first, okay? So on on the one hand, yes, learning loss is absolutely real. And we have students that weren't able to access, um, you know, their classes, their teachers, their communities, et cetera, for many, many months, you know, or a year or more. And that's a problem, obviously. And we are we are going to have to make some significant efforts to address that learning loss. And and that's particularly true in, in communities that don't have access to, you know, where 70% of the students don't have devices at home or don't have internet or whatever. And I think you can see though, that we're on the cusp of some change there because we're actually starting to see legislation and some arguments for um, broadband or at least internet as a a human right, right? And if you think about it, if we're saying that everyone has the right to a free and appropriate public education, but you don't have internet, how, how then do you access it? So I think that's a really interesting thing to watch moving forward. Um, I also have noticed that there's a lot of money in budgets right now for devices to be able to make sure that we we don't have that same problem again. So there's there's that just elephant in the room, right? Which is there's a, a, a an un a, an inappropriate proportion of students in the in the United States of America, the richest country in the world, that 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 don't have devices and can't access their education. That's a problem. However, like I said, we, we are seeing a lot, of, a, a lot of movement toward fixing that issue. In terms of learning loss specifically, I think you need to look at that in two ways. One is, yes, there's content that students weren't able to absorb and there needs to be specific strategies around addressing that. But the second thing is we can't forget that it's not just that they, they weren't learning, it's what were they learning? So the shift to online learning and, in, and, and Zoom classes and so on, there's, they learn, they were learning different things, right? Number one, there's a huge, there's a huge upskill um, in terms of the online tools, right? In early 2019, not that many teachers or students were necessarily using things like Flipgrid and um, 
you know, podcasting tools and TikTok and Screencastify and Loom and all these other tools that are creative ways for students to express themselves and show their knowledge to teachers. We were writing papers, right? And we might've been doing some forms or making some graphics, but it was not a widespread trend. Now, actually, exit tickets and um, just, you know, demonstrating your learning can be done in a myriad number of ways because we finally embraced, you know, the strengths of being online. So it's not that they weren't learning, it's what were they learning? And I think one of the things that we need to be careful about is that as we, as we define what learning loss is, we can't be so myopic and focused on, they didn't learn the Pythagorean theorem, that we forget that they also learned how to zoom into classes, how to take notes online. They learned you know, how to put together presentations, Google slides, videos. There's a huge skill set there that's part of being a 21st century, century citizen that millions of students have developed. So we have to make sure we don't let go of that. Um, and then as far as the other piece about learning loss though is community connection. And that's a piece where it's kind of all over the map in the sense that in a lot of ways, online communities have fostered community where it didn't exist before. So if you have students that are maybe marginalized students, maybe students on the spectrum or students that have social anxiety or introverts or whatever, in some ways they've been better communityed than they were before the pandemic because you know at home we've noticed that that being online actually gives your more shy students a chance to speak up it gives them an equal voice you know some teachers have said this is fantastic i need to do this more i've noticed that too that you know if you ask for volunteers in a classroom that takes a certain kind of bravery and you get a certain kind of student who raises their hand and is willing to participate but if you can make it a a like i use mentimeter for this but if you can make it a an anonymized online opportunity, you get 90% participation. So how are we, do we have learning loss? Absolutely. But we also have learning gains in different categories that we weren't looking at. And we need to do that. I think the last piece of it, and we can talk about this in a bit, but is, is the social emotional learning. And that's the part where we really have to like poke the bear and take that apart and figure out how we're going to solve that moving forward. That's very cool. You know, it's, you know, one of the things you're talking about, the idea of the, by making it anonymous, then more of them actually respond because they're a little worried about what people are going to think. I don't know if you ever messed around with Google Plus, the the communities mm -hmm. in that world. That was, yeah. I, tr I tried working with teachers in that area and it worked fine until somebody really wanted to say something. <laughs> and then you realize, yeah, that's, they're not, they're just, they're being guarded with their, and that you could see why, because as soon as you said something, then someone might comment back directly to them because they saw their name there and stuff. And so that just would shoot all of that. It would go away. I mean, any great stuff, whereas what you're talking about would be so helpful. So good stuff. I, you know, I kind of, I really do think that I think there's going to be a end of this, but you know, we kind of that, like I said before, kind of have this asterisk for this year mm -hmm. um, or year and a half or however far this expands out, but it's, I, I I do think that having different ways to address that, knowing what we're dealing with is important with that uh, idea that uh, there are kids that they need to be accelerated. They need to be pushed. They've got to be caught up and pushed on beyond it because there's, <laughs> for whatever reason, um, you know, there were some moments there that uh, I think some of them could tell you that they're a little, their levels are a lot different than what uh, um, yeah. they should be at, I guess. So. Well, and, and if I can just address that specifically, that's absolutely true. And I think that's true across the board, right? And there was an article in the New York Times that everyone is just flat, right? Every, in a lot of ways, everyone is flat. And even just saying that out loud can be super helpful, 
right? And so one of my sons is taking the AP calculus exam tomorrow and he does not feel great about this right now. And, you know, I had to sort of explain, I think everyone is in the same boat. And so it's, it's not the, I think the biggest thing is for them to just realize that they're not alone, that, you know, everyone is kind of in this, in this boat of needing to play catch up in terms of content. I think it's also just sometimes wise to look at this and say, well, okay, the content piece we absolutely have to address, but let's look at the places where we built resiliency and robustness and skills that don't necessarily show up on AP exams or SATs. Yeah, that's a good good point. So good luck to your son. The uh, that's a that's a big deal, and uh, yeah, you just kind of have to build them up and say you got this, you know. So um, yeah, yeah the, the important stuff. Hey, I, you know, uh, Candace, let's let's kind of use this as a as a segue to go into talking about going back because yeah. you know, there are, there are things that should have changed a little bit that hope, you know, maybe some of which will be permanent change and some, uh, you know, just can, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Well, I think, I think it's important that we physically go back, but I think it's really important that we mentally and emotionally go forward. And there's a difference. You know, I think mentally and emotionally, we have to take what we've learned and we have to absorb that and we have to do better, right? And there is better to be had. I think we have learned that some things do work better in an online capacity. And maybe that isn't even necessarily about the delivery system, but that's about quality of life of the students and teachers as they absorb it, right? So I know that some teachers, you know, being able to, to work from home basically or teach from home two days a week, it makes just a huge difference for their quality of life and their mental health. Right. And, and the same thing can be true of students. So we have to think about what is it that facilitates quality of life best among students and teachers? Because let's face it, teachers are under are squeezed. They're under a lot of pressure. And so we if we're going to honor that, one of the best things we can do is talk about embracing quality of life and saying, how do we do that? So and some of that, again, some of that is if, if the class can be done just as well from home as from school, maybe that is something we should do a couple of days a week. And I know that there are several states looking at legislation in that direction. It also, though, you can't mistake the tidal wave of excitement for people to actually be in person. So I'm not suggesting that, you know, that and there are some people for whom I think a full online program is is probably better. And, and, the, and it's OK for those people to embrace that. But the majority of us you know, get that, that support community and, and really feel the experience when we're in person. So I think for the vast majority of people, they're going to go back in person the majority of the time, but we're missing it. If we don't at least try to take the best of what we got from the situation. And, and maybe that even looks like a resource area where you're, if you're in there five days a week, cause you need to be, but you have some place to go so that you have a little bit more control and autonomy over where you sit, how you sit at your desk, how you, how you participate. Um, and then, you know, the same is actually true because you, I know we're going to have some students that zoom in and then you also have some students that are in person. So that's happening in, in some of my son's classes this year as well. So where he, he's there in person, but some of the class is actually still at home on zoom. So, you know, we have to, we're going to have to be flexible. Um, and we are also going to have to build space for that to work better. I mean, there are certain classes, you know, baking, for instance, really difficult to do that from home chemistry, really difficult to do that from home. There are certain things that just don't make sense, but there have been programs for years that have done the didactic portion online, saving up all the in-person things that you need to do together, you know, in an, in an, in a together in a, in a, in a synchronous environment. 
right? So, I mean, a nursing program in particular comes to mind because, you know, those people are studying at home on their own time and taking their, taking their tests and so on. But then when they come in, they're in a clinic, right? Or they're in a hospital or whatever. So there's, I think we need to really critically look at this and analyze where is, where is the flexibility of a hybrid option or the, or an, even just one class that's online, where does the flexibility of that make us better? Right. As opposed to you're stuck at home and you don't have a choice. Those are, those are completely two different realities. I also think that one of the things that we have to sort of evaluate here is the sort of ubiquity of, you know, ever presentness, right. Of, of, of online uh, tools and, and communication tools is, is draining. So we are going to have to develop some discipline around, put the phone down, right? Get off Instagram, stop right. checking work email. I mean, it, the, the, one of the problems actually that we have, especially for teachers that we're going to have to develop some, some national thought around is, you know, it, it, it stopped becoming work from home and living at work. Like you're just never not at work. You're just always at work, right? You're in your pajamas, you're at work. Like, oh, I can work from my pajamas 13 hours a day, right? Yeah, that's, it, a, that's an interesting thing right there. Sorry, I just, you're yeah. right. That is a very scary thing because that's that's it. Uh, go, go ahead, I'm sorry. I no, 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 I, I, think it's, I think it's a dialogue, right? It's a conversation to be had. And, and some of that has to do with, you know, the future of work as well. Like in some ways, embracing a hybrid option gives gives so much more flexibility and autonomy and it trains younger people for what the, the 21st century world of work looks like. I know a lot of companies, and I'm in the San Francisco Bay area, but a lot of companies here are saying, you can work from home indefinitely. You can work, you can work a hybrid option. We only need you in the office one day a week. We have satellite campuses now. And I gotta be honest with you. I had, I think when we talked before I mentioned this, but my hope is that this is the diaspora of our tech industry and it will prevent us from being pot bound. Do you know what I mean by pot bound? You mean like a, like a plant with a, the root ball that's stuck in a, um, that shape because it's been in that small <laughs> container for too long. That's right. I'm saying break the pot and we need to actually move those roots out into other parts of the country. And I'm, and we're projecting a pandemic boom. The economist is actually projecting 6% growth in GDP in the U S in the U S next year, this year. So I, I think it's the start of something that can be pretty amazing. And we have to recognize though, that a lot of that involves taking responsibility for working remotely, whether that's from home or for a, you know, from a, a co-working space or a remote office or whatever, and learning to take that responsibility when you're in high school, let's say, and having a, a remote, a hybrid option that actually is going to much better prepare students for the, for the world of work that's going to be in front of them. So I think it's exciting. We just, we do have to be careful. There's a lot of social emotional stuff that's come up as a result of the pandemic. And we have to recognize that these students need our support. It's a very interesting thought and topic because it's kind of, you know, cause they definitely need our support. And, um, but the, the whole thing about, uh, you know, whether, uh, you know, what can work and what can't is uh, something that I think is going to be at the forefront uh, for, for a while about what, uh, what changes the, we should be seeing and what can happen and what as a school setting um, we can do versus what the, uh, what the corporate world might do. Because I already know of a couple of friends who their jobs are talking about how um, they're pretty much going to be done once their leases are up with the office space and uh, they're going to they're gonna rent a different type of, they're going to do a different thing where they meet online and once in a while meet in 
they hadn't figured out where the once in a while meeting face to face will be. But I thought that was interesting in itself where, uh, like I said, a couple of these friends, their businesses are getting ready to give up their uh, rental space. <laughs> so I thought that was, that's a sign of things. Um, you know, can we talk about that for a minute? Sure, sure. Um, I know many companies that are kind of in the same boat and there are a number of companies that are what they call remote first companies, meaning, you know, they're remote first, but they do meet up in person. And what they do is they do quarterly or yearly retreats, that kind of thing to, to meet and build relationships. So in, in that regard, actually, I think schools can really, really lead the way and, and collaborate emotionally and emotionally on this, because realistically speaking, teenagers in particular, but they, they need that support at this age. And so it's not what they're, what we're looking for is that balance between flexibility, quality of life and support. And so there is an increased need in companies for sure, as well as in schools to be intentional about social, emotional needs and relationships. So in all the companies I know that are remote first, they have a whole section on their website about how they maintain community, how they maintain positive working relationships, how they build trust, you know, how you stay healthy with that kind of thing. And, and so there's an understanding that you have to be, you don't just get it for free anymore. You know, when you walk in the door and you're next to somebody and they smile at you and you smile at them and you kind of feel like we're all in the same boat, you don't get that in an online environment. So you have to work at it. You have to be intentional on purpose, right? You have to spend the time to build community and trust and, and a sense of safety, right? And psychological safety. So there's, it's doable, but it's, it's not any less, it's not any less of a task. You know, it's your, one of the things that you're making me think about is, you know, it's, um, you know, for a long time in the gaming world, kids have been, and adults have been, uh, um, in this community where they're having conversations back and forth about how to get through this obstacle, that obstacle, or in the moment where they're on a team with people they don't know or do know, and uh, but they don't see each other at the time, and they're just operating online, and they're typing in questions and asking each other stuff or saying stuff to them across the microphones. And, you know, it's funny because what is missing from that world, uh, you know, I've actually witnessed when um, one of those types of games has done its own policing of itself where um, a couple of the older um, players, you know, stopped and said, you know, I don't, I don't know if some of you really need to continue going, if you're going to continue acting like you're, you know, that basically calling out these, um, if, if they were 13 or whatever in there deciding that they were going to have these conversations that just had nothing to do with what was going on, except just lots of, uh, four letter words and so forth. And, uh, yeah. And, Behavior. Uh, and so they called them out to say, we're going to kick you out of here if you're not going to keep going. But, you know, the point is, is that the, they have all these things going on where they're trying to participate, communicate, and, uh, you know, be successful at the game in many cases with people they don't know. Um, and what's missing is that uh, connectivity of uh, really, is this really a person or not? You know, I, I guess you could add anything else in there. It's just the idea that you're kind of in this, you know, in the, in the book, Ready Player One, um, mm -hmm. and they get into that quite a bit, uh, um, the movie did a little bit, but the book much, much more where you're just yeah. sort of isolated <laughs> that you don't even know who, who it is you're talking to, but, uh, or with or whatever. So just trying to accomplish the mission. It's just interesting. So uh, let's kind of go, let's kind of go into that SEL world for just a minute, because, you know, let's make sure that everyone knows what we're talking about when we say SEL. So when you think of SEL, what is that, uh, what are you referring to? Well, in a, you know, in an academic context, we're talking about social, emotional learning. Um, but obviously that, that has become freshly relevant for adults, 
I mean, because the fact is, like I said, in companies that work remotely, you have to have an intentional cultivation of a culture that is psychologically safe and where you're not depersonalized or objectified. And it is really, really easy in an online world to end up that way. So I started out, by the way, and on bulletin board systems, BBS is online in the 90s. Nice. So yeah, so right, dial up modems and everything, right? Like, you know, somebody in there, like a dinosaur in there with a hammer. I mean, old school stuff, right? Because my dad was a computer science professor. So we had access to stuff. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, it was pretty interesting. But there was definitely a, a sense of removal, right? Of what you say online is it's a whole different place. It was, it was like the wild west in terms of behavior, like you weren't responsible or accountable. And so, you know, it might be more difficult, but realistically speaking, these communities and, and connection and psychological, you know, belonging is still completely possible in an online world. We just have to take responsibility for it as a real place. Right. It has to be real enough such that our behavior affects other people. Mm -hmm. We have to take we have to be accountable for what we say and what we do. I mean, there's lots of different there's lots of different aspects to that. And one of the things that I think schools in particular are very well placed to do is to help students realize that the person that you see face to face and that you're talking with and you're looking in the eyeball is is still a person when they write an email to you or when they post on you know, Instagram or TikTok or the, I think Clubhouse is actually kind of helpful that way because it's, it's only, it's verbal, right? It's people speaking right. out loud. And you were talking about Ready Player One. In a sense, there was this identity hiding, but in another sense, it was, it was real because it was virtual reality, right? Like you were actually physically in the same place. So the more that we do that, the more you can bring your whole self to a communication, I think the easier that gets. And, and this is, this is definitely where we need where we need teachers and counselors and administrators, administrative leaders in schools to step up and start strategizing. How do we make sure that this is, that their online community is as real as their real world community and that they can learn to be responsible citizens in all of those spaces, right? Because realistically speaking in, in an online community, if, and it, yeah, I keep talking about remote first companies, but when you grow up and are an adult, what you do matters, right? And when you are growing up into an adult, you want to learn early, you know, in, in a good way, right? How do I learn that what I do matters in positive and negative ways, right? I can help. I can be supportive. I can donate. I can say something positive. I mean, I think there was a kid, this went viral. There was a kiddo who posted on Facebook that like nobody came to his birthday party. It was so sad. And, you know, his mom, I think he's, he has Asperger's or, you know, um, autism spectrum disorder. And his mom posted it and said, no one came to his party can we, can I get some likes or what, like literally a million people, a million people, right. Were like posting little hearts. And then they, they took up this campaign to mail him birthday cards. And then there's a photo in his like room is full of birthday cards. <laughs> you can source the best from people and we can source the worst. And the biggest thing about, you know, what our, what the role of education is in, as we move forward is making sure that we do better and not worse. Oh, that's good. That's, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. As I was listening to you, you know, there's just so many different things. And one of the things you made me think about is that um, as with SEL, what's, what I've noticed happening as a trend is more and more, the authors are including a chapter or two on the instructor, the teacher, and the importance of them recognizing their needs for some sort of nurture and uh, paying attention to uh, 
what their feelings of isolation might be and, you know, and fill in the blank with any other thing else. Because, you know, what's funny is my, I love teaching and my favorite memories though, were at, there was a period of time where I worked in a school where they brought up concepts from uh, the middle school to the high school. And so I worked on a team and uh, team 10, four was amazing. Uh, I had powerful colleagues and just had a, had a blast and there's nothing better than, I mean, you're right there. So you reinforce when things work and don't work. We did a lot of uh, interactive uh, um, interdisciplinary type uh, activities and such for the kids. And, you know, and so you could reinforce with each other when things didn't work out right. And you reinforce that, uh, hey, this will get better or, hey, this was awesome. And, you know, and you got that type of feedback and you're right there and it just inspired you to do more. And I think, uh, I think that's one of the things that uh, you don't have to be on a team, but in a, in a school setting where uh, teachers are connected to the other teachers in the building, because that's all part of culture, <laughs> um, yeah. that climate and culture in the building. But, you know, it's when they are, you see that reinforcement of uh, wanting to do more, do this, do that, whatever. And I think, uh, I think some of this, uh, the virtual land has to, we have to figure that out as well with the adults because they're missing that part of it too. Cause it's like, you know, Anybody, anybody, <laughs> crickets, you know, is the, except for the, the students, you know, kind of need that, uh, eh, we'll, we'll figure this one out or whatever. Anyway, I just a food for thought. Just something you made me think of when you were talking about that. Oh, you know, actually, this is, this is really key. Um, most companies that are remote first, and um, I think the reason why it comes up in companies is because, you know, employee morale and how employee you know, people don't leave jobs necessarily because of the work they leave because of their relationships aren't working or whatever. So there's a big focus on making sure that people are happy at work. And we kind of need to have that focus on making sure people are happy at school. Right. And, and that needs to be true for both teachers and students. And, you know, absolutely energy's catching. I mean, as you know, I ran a makerspace before this and we know when you're in there and everybody's got power tools in their hands or just tools of any kind or somebody's taking a computer apart it is totally catching i mean people will come in just having a crappy day and they'll wander around and find duct tape and start making something because they can't help it right they're just the vibe coming off of the other people just the creativity juices in the air you know it's it you just can't help it and you need to have and and teachers need to have that too they definitely need to have that kind of like supportive vibe and be able to build off of off of each other's positive energy. And in a lot of companies, there's now mandatory like in-person meetup times that are, you know, I think they do once for, for globally distributed teams, they do that once a quarter. And that's flying people from all over. But, you know, for for local teams, you could do it like once every six weeks a couple of times a quarter, just to make sure that you're filling up that cup. I mean, as a teacher, I know what it's like to be exhausted and drained and trying to lead and it's hard to do a good job, right? And then you don't feel good about it. And then it's like this downward spiral, right? But if you are feeling like filled up and supported and like, oh, I've got new ideas, this is great, I'm excited, then you're, oh, you're gonna do a better job and you're gonna feel better, right? And, and we know that one of, the, one of the most difficult things right now is that is teachers not feeling supported. So we need to do that, right? And, and one of the biggest things we need to do is recognize that it, this teaching remotely is not easier. It doesn't require less energy. It doesn't require less time. You know, when you have to do something online, you can't just stand up there and hold things and, and demonstrate anymore, right? Now you have to figure out, well, how do I make this translate to a different environment, right? So it, it is just as labor intensive and just as time intensive and requires some special effort to make sure that we're nurturing those teachers. So you know, 
the worst thing ever would be to decide that we need fewer teachers. I think what we can do is we can make better use of, of buildings, right? And there are some schools that do that already. I know one of my son's schools does that where they've got the ninth and 10th graders in one week, and then they've got the 11th and 12th graders in the following week. And so they're, they're making use of, of space for social distancing. But I know of a school in Hawaii that they actually come in every, they swap entire populations of students every six weeks. So they have students come into the building for six weeks and then they leave and have a different cohort of students come in for six weeks. And in that six weeks, they're learning at home or they're doing project-based stuff or whatever it is that they're doing. So as long as everything that you're doing is aimed toward, you know, student learning, I mean, how amazing would it be if you could just go like backpacking in the Andes, right, for a semester and you just log into your classes every morning, but you can still do both of those things. I mean, what an amazing way to, I mean, I know that's just a random example, but backpack through the Ozarks, right? I mean, right. America has amazing places to go too, but yeah. ama imagine if you could go do your life, but you get to take your education with you. I mean, oh, there's yeah. tremendous power in that. No, yeah, very much so. It'd be cool. I I remember a trip as a kid out to, uh, uh, the, I think it's a national park, but it's called Big Bend and it's in uh, the Western corner of Texas and gorgeous place that you could spend, you could get lost literally and stay forever out there. Um, but I mean, that'd be, that'd be awesome. Be able to be there and be able to talk in with people and communicate as to what you're, you know, what, while you're doing the other lessons and things. So good stuff. Um, yeah, I can think of any number of them. I mean, just, you know, right here in the state of Georgia, we got all kinds of places. Okefenokee swamp comes to mind first off the bat, you know, so, but yeah, good stuff. I, I uh, you know, one of the things that let's kind of use this to shift into the idea of what do you think's next? I mean, what's what's next in, in our world? Well, such an interesting question. Um, in terms of what's next, because the world of work is shifting as well as the world of education. So, and I don't think, like I said, I don't think that those two things can necessarily be separated because if you think about it, one of the goals of education, not the only one, certainly, but one of the goals of education is to prepare young adults to be able to join the world of work, right? And, you know, whether that's career or I'm sorry, whether that's college or whether that's career or, you know, whatever that looks like. And, and I think that as the world of work changes, we in education have to sort of look at that and say, how does that affect what we do moving forward? Um, so I think that's interesting. Um, in terms of what's next, what I would love to see is some work on our, on the equity side around making sure that students have access to devices and broadband. Um, and then the other thing we kind of need to do is we need to look at how do we maximize for outcome as well as for quality of life. So yes, our goal is to learn and our goal is to develop and become the best version of ourselves, right? What is, but let's not get confused and confuse desks and lockers with teaching, with education in the same way that a courtroom with someone in a robe and a gavel is not justice, right? So we really have to think about this and put the student at the center. And then we have to have another dialogue where the teacher is also, where teacher well-being is at the center because teacher well-being is, that's their learning environment, right? A teacher's work environment is a student's learning environment. So we have to put those two, we start with the student at the center and then have another conversation with the teacher at the center and say, how do we optimize for, for, for those things. And the biggest thing I think is that we don't, you don't want flexibility to be what it has been, right? Which is the freedom to stay at home and be stuck in your house. Woo. 
no, that really, no. I mean, it really should look like in the best of all worlds, that flexibility looks like the freedom to go out and experience the world and still be able to dial into your class. That genuinely is it. I mean, you can do project-based something, you can do travel, you can do an internship, you can go stay on a farm and, you know, be part of a, do a farm stay and be part of a, part of a family and be logging into your classes three, three or four hours a day, you know, whatever that looks like, because just because of the the power of experiential learning. So I think what we need to do is recognize that a classroom is a certain kind of experience, but the world is another kind of experience yeah. and be able to embrace, embrace that more. Um, I don't know how, <laughs> I think in the immediate term, that's not what's going to happen, right? In the immediate term, what's going to happen is there, there needs to be development of infrastructure so that we can have students in class three days a week and maybe at home or flexible two days a week. And then from that, we need to build out the options of what that flexibility looks like. But minimally, kids aren't commuting, teachers aren't commuting. And it, it the first thing we have to do is build space, right? You have to build some space for there to be something else. So if, if kids and, and teachers are used to commuting five days a week, and now they're only commuting three days a week, what, what does that open up room, space for? And I think, I think the best thing we can do is embrace the idea of let's make some space for something else. Interesting. Interesting thoughts there. Cause you got me, you got my brain going all different directions. I had, uh, cause I, I mean, like, you know, just everything from the idea of being in this, you know, in the moment and learning and all that stuff. We go back to big Ben story. I, I, for the first time, yeah. I, that's where I, that's where I came in contact with a, with a neat critter that, uh, um, called a horn, horn toad or a horn frog. I've heard which one they're called, but it looks like a lizard with little, with funny little horns on it and coolest little things. And, uh, you know, they look like something out of a sci-fi movie, but, you know, um, actually they were all over the place out there. What, uh, discovered, uh, under rocks now in hindsight, probably if, you know, my mom and known where my sister and I were digging around a uh, little scary thought, especially after you watch enough movies about rattlesnakes, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, discovered where an animal had died and its skeleton was there. And, uh, um, you know, it's, as, as a note, I still have this, <laughs> this is a long time ago and I, I still have this skull. <laughs> um, but the, uh, um, but you know, just that type of learning, experiential learning that lends itself to remote, uh, learning is just amazing. Um, you know, that, yeah. and then some of the, some of the stuff that we're talking about is, uh, you know, it is interesting because obviously there's, there's a push, back <laughs> push against um as well as how you know the questions of how do you how would you make this work because as a parent you know it's one thing if a parent's job says we're going to close down the building and you're going to work from wherever you know your home is or you know as long as you can get your work done and not all jobs allow lend themselves to that but there are lots right. and uh um but do, are they able to do their job if their child is in their house? <laughs> uh, right. No, that's completely reasonable. And, and it has disproportionate effects on people whose jobs aren't work from home. Right. And we know that in the you know, lowest 20% quintile in terms of socioeconomic remuneration, like the, low, the income levels, we know that, the 20, that the, of the 20% in, in that group, that only about 14% of that group can work from home you know, because those are jobs that typically require being on site. And then of the highest quintile of income earners, 90% of those people can work from home. 
So it disproportionately affects people who don't have the resources to, to stay home with their kids. So I fully appreciate the problem. So especially with younger kids, I think what that looks like is we need to reimagine what a, a space would look like right? Where yes, you're in school and yes, you need to be dialed into your class, but you know, can we have libraries, lounges, places where students can come in and, you know, as long as you're accounted for, you can be anywhere you want to, you know, within, within certain spaces. And then, you know, if a parent drops them off, that's attendance, right? They're there, you know, whatever. But realistically, you can also have the students where they, where parents say, no, we want them to be at home Tuesday, Thursday, and maybe it's a long commute, or maybe that they're looking for an experiential, they already have an experiential opportunity and they're going to do that. So for younger kids, it's more of, it's more work for sure. But for older kids, especially in high school, I mean, I don't know if, I think a junior senior at that point, yeah, you can have a situation where they have to check in and maybe they have to be in the building for, for certain you know, for certain situations, but for the most part, those kids are old enough to be a lot more autonomous, autonomous than, than we are giving them credit for. Um, and that we probably need to give them practice with because they're going to hit age 18 and then they're out, right? They're out. And they're going to have to, they're going to have to take responsibility for that entirely on their own. So I, I think actually it, it's in terms of the model, there obviously needs to be a way that, you know, either parents would opt in to attendance and they drive their kid to the building and then the students can be in, you know, in designated spaces, right. That are libraries or, you know, cafeterias or whatever, or they opt out and they decide they're going to take responsibility for their child. Right. And so you can have a, ideally you'd have a resource learning center and all the, and students who, who needed a space can go to the resource center, but in an, in a current world, probably it's the, the school library, right? The school cafeteria, you know, whatever that looks like. But as long as a student is logging into their class on time, they should have freedom of movement, you know, physically, but you know, for some students, it makes more sense for the parent to opt out of the space and have them at home, you know, or experientially doing other stuff. I actually saw a girl who is a, um, equestrian. She rides horses. Yes. Yes. And yeah. And so she's out there like literally at the horse barn, She's sitting there with her laptop on. She's got her boots on, which are covered in, you know, horse muck because she's trying to mucking out the stable, but she's taking a break. She's logging into her class and then she's going to go back and do what she needs to. I mean, that's the, you know, that's awesome. Right. Or even you're a skateboarder and you're out developing your skills and you're videotaping it and, you know, whatever. And you take a break and you come in and you log into your classes and then you are going back pursuing whatever your passion looks like. So, you know, that's, we need to get there but we can start with at least creating space for student autonomy you know, and flexibility. Yeah, what's interesting about what you're talking about is I've actually had some experience as a principal at, at one of my schools where we had some kids who were elite athletes mm-hmm. and now they're in a whole nother world than um, just because they're, they're, they're working with coaches uh, that are just, you know, they're, they're elite is appropriate <laughs> and um, and so I've dealt with it with equestrian. That's why I said, oh, yeah, that's, I forgot about that. I've had uh, um, some children who were just uh, just just very competitive in the in the horse uh, um, whor- horse world with the uh, um, I think what are you, equestrian events, um, the dressage and things like, you know, just the, but primarily they were there were all kinds of whether it was racing horses or whatever it was they were doing. Um, they. Uh, um, there were times in the year where they had to be wherever they were had to be. So their learning was shot out to them that way. Um, I've had uh, um, some elite 
tennis players and golfers, similar sorts of things. And just kind of interesting. Cause I, I hadn't even thought about that until you started talking about that. I'm like, Oh yeah. You know, that's we've, so we have had some experience with that now. Um, that's, uh, yeah. that, the, so that world kind of lends itself that we might be able to look at that for some help in figuring it out. But well, I fully agree. And obviously you're talking about elite. My son is a gymnast, right? And so he actually trains 20 hours a week. He's, you know, made nationals and is going to nationals in mid-May. Cool. So I fully understand that. I mean, 20 hours a week is a lot. That's four hours a day, five days a week since he was like eight. Wow. I mean, I'm just saying like, that's a lot, but it, it offers, you know, we're going to fly to Florida for nationals. And then from the hotel room, he's going to be logging into his classes right in the, you know, whenever they're, whenever they're happening and then he's going to go compete. Right. So there's, there's model, there's a model there, but there's also the, you know, he needs to, he needs to go to where his gym is. And so he's going to, what he does is we drive over at noon. Right. And we find a co-working space and he attends two of his afternoon classes so that he's right next to the gym and, and it's not late for training. Like there's, there's already an ability to do that. Um, but obviously elite athletes in general are highly motivated. Right. <laughs> so you do have to, you know, we, we do have to adjust for that. We have to adjust for what if you're not highly motivated and we need to make sure that we can support those students as well, which is why I'm saying we, we certainly don't, it's not any less difficult, right? Offering personalization and freedom and the ability to be led, let, let students explore passions more doesn't take any less energy or time or people. It just takes different energy and different time. But, you know, for sure, that's why I was saying a, a space, right? Like start with having the students be in the library. You'd be amazed at the kind of motivation that can develop when a student actually has the freedom and autonomy to do it and maybe match them up with a mentor and help them find something they're interested in pursuing or spending their time on, right? And if they don't want to do that, you can always have optional classes that are you know, that are hands-on or, you know, somebody shows up, a teacher is going to show up and, and they provide a segment that is fully, you know, we, we did that once with ceramics. So I was running the makerspace and we didn't have, we had less than, we had classes three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and we didn't have anything Thursday. And the teacher and the, and his parents were like, Hey, so about Thursday, I need a place for my kid to go. Same problem. Right. And I said, well, I don't have any, um, I don't have any instructors. Cause I would always get subject matter experts to come in and teach their stuff. Cause there's nothing more exciting than someone who really loves what they do. But I just had this ceramicist come in and get a pottery wheel and she just started throwing pots and we brought in extra wheels and there was clay and she wasn't teaching a formal lesson. It was just come in and have a seat. And you know, if you want, there's clay. And if you have questions, I'll help you. But she was just throwing pots. And of course, like within a month, there's like 20 people trudging in to sit down and just be there. And some of them threw the worst pots ever, but they didn't care. They were just had there to have the experience. And some of them genuinely got into it and were like, okay, how do I do this? And we're asking questions And you know, by three months in, she couldn't even throw pots anymore. Right. She was just busy helping people. That's funny. So yeah, yeah, I know. And it, so, but the whole thing of it is like, I, I really believe that every student has something that they really care about. And so if we kind of put that at the center and go, how can we make space for people to connect with that? I know that's a little bit esoteric, but how in terms of management, right? That has to look like you're checked into the school, you're not checked into the school. And if you are checked into the school, what kind of support structures can we provide for you? And at the current moment, that's probably there's space in the library, there's space in extra classrooms, there's space in the cafeteria, make sure you log into your classes and then start thinking about resources we can provide during those interstitial times. But it's a beginning for sure. 
Definitely. That, and that's the thing. I mean, because there's any number of, yeah, but, yeah, but, well, yeah, but that could be added. But, yeah, but I don't want to go there right now because it's pretty cool when you think about it. Because, you know, if you, if you kind of start thinking that direction, maybe we can overcome that, yeah, but somehow. Um, and, you know, because just as a note, um, in the, that short period of time when I dealt with some of these ath elite athletes, yeah, I can tell you most of them were so highly driven. It was insane. But yeah, sometimes that, that highly driven is only for their their sport. Uh -huh. <laughs> I'm thinking of a uh -huh. hockey player right now. But it's you know it's like, dude, come on, man. <laughs> you know. Anyway, but uh, uh, but if it's needed to get, but if that's the blocker, and it's like if you want to keep playing hockey and you want to have this flexibility, then this needs to get done. Then usually that that's a good motivator for those students. Yeah, it's just interesting because it does because it does bring itself back to the the idea of uh, just the different things. If you kind of had that as your attitude that we could make this work, you know, with your most difficult children who don't want to stay focused, could you still make something work out? How could we get a? How could we move through that? Because I mean, you're talking to somebody who um, part of my career. I mean, I and as a principal, I've always had to deal with discipline, and you know, you know I mean, I think you can make it work out you absolutely can make it work out. I mean, for one thing, if you're, if you're, if you're creating a space, right. And they're maybe not super motivated, they can use it to do homework. They can use it to work on their own stuff. They can use it to draw. And if some people just need to sit right and just not do a whole lot, but then there's not really any harm in it because realistically speaking, what were they doing in a classroom before sitting? <laughs> True. I'm, I'm just saying like, you yeah. know, if you make it better, and you, you create opportunities to make it better for more people, right? And you one of the things is you're telling that student, I trust you. I trust you to develop some of your own interests. And there are some students who will choose to check in and be in a really facilitated space. And we need to be, we do need to be able to provide that, right? Like, and, and you need to make that choice as a parent, right? Am I checking them in to be, if, if it's a third grade student, I probably need a facilitated space where a, where a teacher can go around and support students with individual work or, you know, have, there's a project available if you want to do that. Like it, it, but it doesn't need to look like a lead pedagogical lesson, right? Where there's a collaborative decision to work on specific material. We can do it differently. It's interesting. So, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping that there are some models that spring up and I bet we'll see some. Oh, I think we will. I think we definitely yeah. will. Very cool. I'm so, excited. I'm excited. Yeah. It's neat stuff. I, you know, uh, Candace, uh, we're, we're starting to close out on time. And uh, um, what I want to make sure is that uh, um, just want to remind everybody that you are the uh, um, director of uh, Manga High of North America. And uh, is there anything you want to say about Manga High before we go? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, Manga High is, has been incredibly supportive of students working at home. Um, games can be played on phones and devices, which has been great. You know, I've had stories of kids playing, you know, on their break at McDonald's because they're in seven, they're, you know, they're in credit recovery mode or whatever, and they're doing what it takes and it's fun and engaging. And, and we really embrace the idea that, that students are, you know, students are good people that want to learn. Um, and that if we give them appropriate challenges and make, and make fun and make learning fun and digestible, that more students will engage. So, and, and we've actually, we've seen that, we've seen that, we've seen like triple the students take it up. Um, and we've also seen a lot more students engaging in playing math-based games, which is great because obviously math is one of the biggest, um, you know, areas where there's learning, where there hasn't been learning progress, let's say that, right? Um, so, you know, being able to be part of the solution is really exciting for us. And we're really, we're really happy to be able to do that. Very cool. And uh, where would they go to find more information about Manga High? 
mangahigh.com. Easy. And I'll have that in the show notes and all that good stuff. And Candace, it was awesome talking to you again. Uh, thanks for joining me and, uh, and uh, wish you the best in all you do. Thanks so much, Stephen. Always a pleasure. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.